3: Autosport International, live at the NEC.
2: Come to Autosport International as we celebrate 70 years of the Italian supercar legend, Ferrari. Get up close to an amazing array of race and road cars. Meet motorsports legends, including Red 5 himself, Nigel Mansell. And there's more, much, much more. Don't miss Autosport International, live at the NEC on the 13th and 14th of January. Book online
1: at autosportinternational.com.
2: It's the Autosport Podcast. We explain why Kibitz's Williams test didn't go as well as hoped and what it means for 2018. So the 2017 Formula 1 season may be done and dusted, but there's still plenty of news going on, plenty of stories to follow. One of the big ones, of course, being Robert Kubica and the will-he-won't-he comeback with Williams. Of course, he was testing in Abu Dhabi. I'm your host, Ed Straw, and joining me to have a look at some of the the big topics in Formula 1 at the moment, I've got an expert panel. First up, we have Ben Anderson, our our Grand Prix editor. Now, Ben, all of us were at the Autosport Awards uh, on Sunday night. What was your finest moment?
3: Uh, I have two, actually, that I've picked out. The special awards handed out to Derek Warwick and to uh, Nelson Piquet, and particularly their reactions to receiving those awards. It was it was nice to see uh, how much the Autosport Awards means to people uh, in motorsport
2: still, after all these years. Yeah, and I think Derek Warwick in particular was a, was a good recipient, because I think people maybe underestimate how much work he does with young drivers behind the scenes. DC, David Coulthard, who was presenting, obviously mentioned when he was a 16-year-old kid, he just basically randomly met up with Derek Warwick for some advice at a time when Derek didn't know him from from Adam, and that even then Derek was willing to unofficially just just give help. So I think that's that's why that was such a, a good moment. Now a second guest, Lawrence Baratto. Ben's taken some of the moments, so uh, so I hope you've got uh, <laughs> I, I hope you've got an alternative.
1: Uh, yeah, well, there's a few moments left, so hopefully I'll just stick to one so that you guys have got some other ones. And um, my favourite moment was when um, Robert Kubica was on stage. Um, it was, I thought it was just nice to see him back at the forefront at an award ceremony um, and they gave him enough time to have a chat to the audience and um, I won't go into too much detail about what he said but I thought it was just nice that they gave him some time to have a, a discussion um, about what he's up to and what he's hoping to do.
2: It was interesting wasn't it because Lee McKenzie who was co-presenting with with DC mentioned that Kibitza had been careful about Getting himself back into an F one environment, or even a circuit racing environment. Remember, he didn't go to a circuit race for for many many years after his accident. So it was it was great that he was able to be to be part of that. So I guess that made the moment even even better.
1: Definitely, and I think you could see how much it meant to him to be there. He, I think he enjoyed being in and amongst other motorsport people they used to spend a lot of time with as well. So I thought it was quite nice. And my
2: final guest, who somehow managed to get an invitation to the Autosport Awards again, I'm not quite sure how that happened, <laughs> uh, Karin Chandok, the Hello. third most successful racing driver well, in at the my zoo. table.
0: Well, yeah, I had Robert Kubica sitting next to me, actually.
2: Um, though it was
0: great. I mean, I've known Robert since 2005. It was nice to to see him, as Lauren said, back there, and um, just catching up, really, and, you know, talking about... Um, you know, just just life and how he's had to give up bowling and all the sort of see, things I I outside of
2: his racing that he enjoyed. It doing. was news to me that he was such a crack at ten pin bowler before. before uh, he, he was
0: brilliant. Well, I used to see him in Italy, um, where we'd go training when I was racing in GP two and F one and stuff. And he lived there, and he still he actually still lives in the same town. Um, and he was a bit of a legend in the whole, you know, in the in the town bowling community. You had all these people and families going out of the bowling alleys on a on a Friday night or whatever once a week but Robert would be there sort of five nights a week practicing his bowling so um he's a bit of a legend um but yeah i th- i think my sort of favorite moment um uh, was seeing Dan Tickton win the uh, McLaren Auto Sport award cuz i think it's 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 something that is um really important for young drivers at this this stage of their career um you know to to be recognized and he in particular Uh, And he was quite, I thought, quite mature in the way he talked about how he was immature earlier, and he'd made mistakes, and he'd sort of come out the other side, and um, I I met him at a cold, wet day at Pembrey earlier this year. In
2: In fairness, that's where you meet most people, you know. Yeah,
0: yeah, in February. But he, um, and he was there driving one of Double R's Formula 3 cars, Um, and I stood there with with, um, Anthony Hyatt, who runs Double R, and we just... You know, and we were just amazed with the car control that kid had. It was seriously impressive to watch. Absolutely no fear. And I, I said to um, Boyo at the time, I was like, wow, he's he's pretty special um, with his car control. Uh, and this this was obviously before he's had his success this season winning Macau and stuff. So... I think it was nice to see his, his year get underlined, really.
2: And I think in the case of of and obviously you mentioned the troubles he's had, he he alluded to them on the stage, obviously incident a couple of years ago when he, he passed 10 cars under the safety car to collect uh, Ricky Collard during an MSA Formula race, which quite rightly got him a a one-year ban with a further year suspended uh, suspended ban. And a lot of people have, have kind of held that against him. And we've seen some comments on social media, oh, how can he do that and that? But for me, he was 16. If we're all going to be judged by what we were when we were 16 and have everything held against us. Yes, it was a reprehensible thing to do and he he served with. his time and yeah, exactly. I think it, it shows some impressive strength that he's been able to come back and do so well. When Vettel managed to hit somebody behind the
3: safety car, he got punished and people don't still bang on about it, do they?
2: Although I have just brought it up again. Well, I'm going to choose my uh, my favourite moment actually was the bit that uh, egotistically I was involved in which is the <laughs> Autosport Williams Engineer of the Future Award which is in its third year. Uh the, basically we get some of these ace um soon-to-be graduates from from the best universities in the UK who uh we have a, a final five person shootout as it were. It's it's basically like the McLaren Auto Sport B R D C Award. So was like a shootout but for, for in particular. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So um that was one by Martin Salmans. And in fact on stage they were talking about the the challenge where they had to basically build a, a device to suspend a wheel nut. Uh, using only paper and cellotate, and which is a, a surprisingly surprisingly fun task. But it's uh, it's interesting to see how how these all massively intelligent, very accomplished, all going to get you know fantastic fantastic degrees and, and have have great careers. How they how they approach things, how they work together, and it's uh, it's very interesting to be involved. With it. So Robert Kibitzer, he's still waiting to find out if Williams are going to run him or not. Our expert in this field is Lawrence Baratto, who was in Abu Dhabi we we left him out there after the after the Grand Prix to to track Kibitza's progress at the test can you just give us a summary of the test and where things are at in terms of his prospects of being in that seat next year
1: I thought you left me out in Abu Dhabi so I could get some sunshine and an early holiday but uh, then I need gonna... to
2: keep you out of the way actually
1: yeah that sounds more about right um so Abu Dhabi test was really all about Robert Kibitza I would say that a lot more media ended up staying. There was a lot more interest. And the number of fans, actually, that he managed to attract to come down was impressive. They had a giant flag in the grandstand opposite the garage, um, which had 6,000 faces of of, of of the fans, and many of them who follow him um, around the world when he's been testing.
2: A giant flag's always a good thing for F1.
1: Exactly. like We look at giant flags everywhere we go, don't we?
2: Course, Very much so in the Middle East as well. There's a big one in Bahrain, isn't there? They always drive Massive past. flag in Bahrain. I think yeah.
1: Bahrain leads. Maybe Azerbaijan's trying to chase it. Sorry, we're going to we're, <laughs> we're going to be really Kubica. careful.
2: Sir. Me and Lawrence had a very, very lengthy debate when in Austin earlier this year about at what point a flag becomes giant rather than just medium. And this went on for a very long time, so we don't, we don't really want to get into that too much now. No, quite. Unresolved. Get, get back on topic, Lawrence. Sorry,
1: Robert Kubica. Um, so he had a... Um, they, William stuck him in a car for about two-thirds of a day on the first day and then they gave him the final third of uh, day running on the Wednesday. And... Um, First day was kind of focused on just kind of getting him into the car, settled with the car, Um, some longer runs. I think he did about four, 14 lap runs towards the end of the day. The Wednesday was focused on performance. I would say at the end of the first day, they were pretty pleased. The feeling among the team were that he'd done a good job. Um, Talking to some of the mechanics, they were kind of happy at how quickly he kind of integrated with the team. They all got on very well with him. They're happy with the feedback, that kind of thing. Then on Wednesday, I would say there was there was an element of doubt that kind of crept in uh, among the team. Uh, there wasn't that certainty that they felt after the first day. Um, that was a mixture of Sergei shotkin who'd been in the car um, for most of that day, um, was perhaps slightly stronger than they had perceived him to be. Uh, and then Robert's... Uh, short run that he did right at the end of Wednesday perhaps wasn't as quick as they'd expected to be so I think that it kind of just shifted a little bit in terms of their expectation and having hoped to have made a decision reasonably soon after the Abu Dhabi test it looks like we're going to be waiting a little bit longer uh, to find out more just because they're in this kind of quandary now.
2: So less convincing on the second day in terms of what not not building to the next step as, as hoped for consistent what, what's the the area that, that they were not impressed with or not totally convinced by I should say. So
1: I think generally the trajectory ha- is just it is going upwards and I think they are impressed that he's making gains I just don't think that the gains that he made were as big as they hoped they would be I think they were hoping because they, Williams keep talking about performance and they want to make decisions based on performance and I think they were hoping that he would give them a really strong reason to say yep we're going to take you because this has, been, this has been mega and we're really happy with you and you've beaten the rest of the guys on the short list by that length. And I don't think that he quite made that level um, on it. That might just be because their expectation was much higher than they'd hoped. But in terms of what he delivered in that short run right at the end, wasn't as high as they'd hoped.
2: Well, we did see in the, in the pictures from the test, there was a small modification to the cockpit surround to accommodate the, the fact that the right the right elbow doesn't fully straighten and it doesn't sort of fit in a, in a normal cockpit. So I guess this is a question actually for Karun for in terms of the impact his limitation had. He said at the awards on the stage that his his limitation, as he called it, is more of a problem in his day-to-day life than when in a Formula One car. You know far better than the rest of us what it takes to drive a, a Formula One car. So when you look at the limitation of movement he's got there, and for me it's less the strength and the movement and more the sensitivity that that I wonder about. How much of a of a limitation do you think there is there it's very hard without being in the car but but what do you think
0: it's not so much about um hard to judge because we're not in the car but it's hard to judge because we're not him you know only he knows really what pain he feels and and what range of movement he's got it's it's really impossible for any of us to tell how much movement or how much sensitivity or how much feeling he's got um I don't think there's a physical problem. I I really don't think he's got a physical strength problem. don't forget, you know, the Grand Prix cars nowadays with the power steering, the steering is so light. It's, it's, they're not physical in in terms of steering weight. Yeah. The physicality comes from the G force and the loads on your neck and, and, and the actual uh, speed of the cars, especially this year. Um, But it, you know the the actual weight of the steering isn't a problem, and so I think he's got enough strength to, to to turn the wheel and do the bits. And um, I think Paddy talked about how they didn't have to change a whole load of buttons on the steering wheel, and you know they they changed the, the the paddles, for example, on the the upshift, so it was all on the left hand and things like that. But you know Jacques Villeneuve had that back in '97, and it was just because he preferred it. So. It's it's not entirely unusual, I think. What what they've done there, um, I think, in reality, it's going to come down to is he going to is he going to be quick enough to qualify the car in Q three? You know that. What's the what's the trickiest thing in all of this for Williams is that I think there's a lot of potential in their next year's car. They have still got the benchmark power unit package. Um, they've got now. Good people like Dirk de Beer and Paddy's there. You know, next year is going to be the first sort of car that they've produced from scratch, and they've they've brought from from literally the drawing board, from a clean sheet. Um, and there's a lot of optimism and a lot of excitement about that. They they, I think, recognise the um, deficiencies in this year's package and have already worked to correct it. So they really need a, a driver who's going to qualify that car in Q3. And then two drivers who are going to qualify the car in Q3 because you know McLaren are going to be quicker. You know Renault, the works team, are going to be quicker. Uh, Force India have already proven to be fourth best. So really, if Williams want to get back to being fourth best, they, they've got to have two drivers who can qualify. It's no good being quick on a 14-lap run if you're stuck in traffic. You know, you have to qualify.
2: Well, this is the question, isn't it? Because it's not—it's not a question of whether Robert Kubica can drive a Formula One car. Well, clearly he can. I don't think there's any massive questions about his ability to do a race distance. Well, he's—he's done them. But it's that at this level, the differences between a superstar and, a, and an also ran are so tiny. Even you know the the weakest driver on the grid is still, by any measure, a fantastically good driver. So. What, what is the loss? In, is it well, of quite point, often, one of the percent, tenths, point out? Yeah.
0: Quite, quite often, three tenths can be the difference between getting into Q3 and being, let's say, P13, P14. And when you get into Q3, then you've got the chance to be P7, P8. So all of a sudden, that magic two and a half, three tenths over one lap, you know, at a particular point of the weekend shapes your entire weekend. Do you score? And that's where I think the, you look at the difference between sites and Kvyat. Earlier at Torosa, Science scored 48 points to Kvyat's four. Um, and, and you know, some of it was in qualifying, the fact that he managed to get himself out of a danger zone and Kvyat put himself in trouble. And then you look at what happened at Renault. All of a sudden, they had two drivers capable. Okay, Carlos' last couple of races weren't great,
3: but... He was in that gap, was he? He was in that he? gap. He bridged bre- the, the gap. That, gap. Yeah. He was slotted into the gap that Palmer wasn't... Able to. I mean, Williams. To me, it seems like they've got themselves in a real mess because. Well, they
2: clearly wanted so to jump in the car, blitz it, job bang. done. Yeah, they they, don't, there's uh, no risk on their side. It
3: seems cool. like they wanted the test to be a confirmation test. You know, they've they've. They had a driver who was getting into Q3 reasonably reg- regularly in Felipe Massa, although a driver that, you know, sometimes people say, has he got the last few tenths compared to some of the better drivers? But he was doing a decent job, certainly a better job than Lance Stroll. Who he was out in was, Q1 12 a times. times. A Okay, he's a rookie, but nevertheless, you know, there's a big gap there. And Massa's retired because Williams wouldn't re-sign him and various other reasons. And I think they were thinking, right, Kibitza... The old Robert Kubica was a better driver than Felipe Massa. If he's the same driver he was, bang, we slide him in and the job's done. But it just seems that there is that bit missing. They've ended up in exactly the same situation that Renault ended up in, where they've tested him a few times in an old car, tested him in a current car, and results have been inconclusive. And in the end, that wasn't enough for Renault to be able to say, right, we're going to stick with this and do more tests and maybe sign him. They went and did their own thing. Williams, I think, were banking on getting different results and they haven't got them, and now... They're stuck in a situation where really their best option is already off the table and their next best option doesn't really look as strong as they were hoping. So now you think, well, what do they do? Who do they go for?
2: Well, I think this is where we can bring Lawrence back in. Can you just lay out the... The, the landscape of the choices, it has shifted a little bit. Pascal Verline was once in the running. He's now, now out of contention. It looks like he's going to end up back in uh, back in DCM again. A shame, because his high points have been excellent. I think he's, he's got he's, a Mercedes Formula E quite soon. That would make a lot of sense, wouldn't it? That make a lot of it's sense. It's a shame it? for him, though, because he's he's, yeah, done he's, well. he's come on well. So, he's out of the running. And then we've still got Kvyat Sorokin's come into contention. Paul De still still hanging in there. So if Williams are sat down now and laying out their choices and the pros and cons how does it look well I definitely
1: can't tell you who they're going to choose I don't have that much insider information but I'd like to think think they know yeah (laughs) I think
2: I think they'd be happy to have that
1: well I'd like to think that they're going to be sat around the table and they've got pictures of each of their drivers and they're going to do pros and cons columns for all of them but um I think in terms of who so you've got Robert Kubica I do think he's in the frame I should make clear that I don't think they've ruled him out after that test I just think he's just not a stronger option as they were hoping for
2: and he's still got a good commercial package he's still got the the positive story you know just about everybody would would love to see him in that drive
1: definitely um then you've also got so you've got Sergei turotkin who's a bit of a he's the last minute addition to the shortlist really um he's come with financial backing as well um he's had experience uh, as a reserve at renault then you've got daniel kvyat who he probably hasn't been talked about so much but my understanding is that he, even though they didn't test him in Abu Dhabi, he's still in contention. He also has managed to find some money Yeah, it that. sounds like
2: his financial position has strengthened significantly very recently.
1: Exactly. And I think that's one thing where he has never really had to worry about it because he's always had Red Bull back in. So I think it's interesting that he's managed to get some um, back in now, especially at this late stage and reasonably quickly. suggests that the Russian side of things is it's very important for them to try and have a, a Russian driver on the grid. And then I think the fourth on the list would probably be Paul Deroost. I think he's still he's still in contention, but he's that kind of driver that you kind of work through your other three drivers, and you know he's still going to be there if you if you need him to to plug him in. And as you said, Pascal Verline, he was in contention at some point, but it, it's a long shot now, and I, I think he's drifted out.
3: It Seems like Mes- Mercedes weren't prepared to offer the the discount package with Verline that perhaps Williams might have expected, and therefore it's a case of you just sign him pretty on merit but that's been part of the problem for Williams isn't it that they they seem to need a financial package to go with the driver it's part of the reason it seems that Massa had ran into trouble in negotiations and didn't end up continuing and now it seems like the strongest driver financially is the one they know the least about in Chirotkin I think we would say and that so that's a gamble he's a young driver promising but you know maybe they're unsure they were trying to sign a driver that was experienced and technically astute and somebody to build the team around and it seems that Kibitz is that guy, but in other regards, maybe partly financially, and also now it seems in terms of pace, he's not there. So it's quite hard to resolve. Kvyat, we he know he's a quick driver, but he's you know there's some question marks over his mentality. Maybe that's particular to his Red Bull situation. How strong is his financial package? I mean, if he can get a Sirokin level financial package, he seems like a strong option because he's
2: got more experience. But he's
1: still a gamble, though, isn't he, with his character and how he's kind of behaved over the last couple of years? Because so yeah, the yeah, fact the absolutely. fact
2: remains, yeah, there's big pressure in Red Bull, but this is it's Formula One, it's elite sport. Whether you're in motorsport or any other sports at the absolute top level, it's a mental game, isn't it? And
3: he's been he, found wanting in that yeah, regard. I'd, I'd, he's I'd, had lots of opportunities. He's not. Been short of opportunities. No, no. Well, really? Helmut Marco is very patient with him in that sense. No, feeling surprisingly, like, so I thought. Yeah, well, he, I,
0: I thought this year was um, he—he uh, he was lucky. Gasly wasn't
2: ready. Yes, and lucky year. that the
3: regulation change demanded a bit of continuity on the team side. I think.
2: I think you'd need so, with Kvyat. You'd need a specific reason beyond just the maybe a change of scenery will change the pressure to think that he'll be able to harness his ability. Sorotkin, of course. Is, is no mug. I don't think Williams should be that surprised that he performed well because he's won races in GP2, finished third in GP2.
3: But he's not the experienced driver no, no, to bring on their not. rookie stroll, is he? Yeah. That's the, the thing. So every driver has at the moment a serious drawback and actually you go back and think well actually probably the best option was continuing with Felipe Massa but he's now off the table. What I think interesting in this whole situation for me is
0: you you got to take take a leap backwards 10, 15 years I think and look at Williams's approach to drivers back then and they were uh, you know they were really good at spotting talent and you know finding opportunities and and signing young drivers I mean you know they gave Rosberg his first test PK Jr Scott Dixon you know they're not they were willing to look outside the box and at at, you know probably and arguably one of the best drivers to have not made it to F1. Um, They got
3: Hulkenberg going didn't they?
2: They had yeah. Hulkenberg, you know, Jensen. Button, Montoya. Montoya. Sebastian yeah. Vettel had his first test in Williams, albeit as a prize driver, winning for yeah, BMW. A bit but I like to remind people of that because it's often forgotten yeah. in the annals I mean, of history. Yeah,
0: I a bit different with, um, with, with BMW links. But, you know, I, I think they, they really were one of the standout teams for making the ballsy move to find a rookie driver or a, a top young talent. And they had had a good eye on the market below F1 and they were they were picking those
3: guys it's a sign of the times that the commercial situation has changed and they've they've cycled back around haven't they I mean there was a period where they had Bruno Senna and Pastor Maldonado in the car both bringing financial packages and the team calculated they lost so many points that year through mistakes and missed opportunities they would have been better off signing a stronger driver well that 2012 and- car was really good wasn't it? So they, they, well, and, they, the, and, and the best
2: driver they had on their books that year was Valtteri Bottas. Valtteri
3: Bottas. And they, so they realised if they, if, they, if they thought about it differently, they might have actually done better financially through the points rather than taking the money at the start of the year. So they promote young talent again. Bottas gets in the car, as a great job for them. And now it seems like they've cycled back to a situation where they're looking to take the money. Well, I'm not saying that they're just pursuing that. Obviously, like you say, it's a tough sign of the times, but it's a sad sign of the times that Williams seems to be regressing back to a, a sort of shadow of its of its recent self.
2: Particularly with the fact that, as Karim was saying, with Renault and McLaren, Renault should be resurgent next year. you probably say the, the sort of par baseline level for Williams next year is going to be seventh in the constructors. So... I mean, they, they, they it's going to be a fight for 6th is
3: isn't it, Force really, with Force India, India you yeah. would say? Yes, McCarran but and Renault, Force didn't
2: India, the past few years, have been a consistently really good, stronger yeah. racing. Bear in mind. And a team Est-
3: investing in drivers. Yeah, That's yeah, the but, key but thing, isn't it? Bear
2: in mind, Esteban Ocon or Sergio Perez, operating as a one car team in terms of points scored, would have still finished yeah. ahead of them quite comfortably. So let's not underestimate just because Williams and Force India are at a similar level on paper. You know that there's still a step to be taken there. So I, I...
3: on track, they're, they're miles apart, I think, or getting further apart than than ever. Like, yeah. Force India are the strongest pure midfield team now, aren't they? So hmm. Williams need to improve in quite a few areas to just take them on, let alone beat them. And driver driver lineup at the moment, it looks like they're not going to be anywhere near the same level. Which is a shame.
2: Well, there's plenty for Williams to be thinking about. So check back to Autosport.com for all the latest news on that. One piece of the driver market puzzle that has fallen into place is the Sauber driver lineup. Sauber, of course, who have confirmed the the partnership with Alfa Romeo, so a new livery for them. Charles Leclerc and Marcus Ericsson will be at that team next year. What do we expect from Sauber next year? Obviously, they've stabilised, and the back end of the year was was a bit improved for for them. Charles Leclerc is a very very good prospect, and Marcus Ericsson. On his good days can perform well. On his bad days, things don't go so well. So are we expecting Sauber to take a big leap next year with that?
3: Yeah, I would think so. And they have to, don't they, really? This is probably the first sign of Sauber getting back to being a proper, serious, challenging F1 team again. To have, just first of all, a current engine rather than the year-old package will make a massive difference to their performance. The car, this year it's difficult to judge how weak or strong it was but it certainly improved Uh, and we saw towards the end of the season actually was almost capable of making it out of Q1 whereas from mid-season on it had been nowhere near that so Sauber remains one of the, in terms of infrastructure and quality of staff one of the stronger teams on the grid Um, you know, formerly tied up with BMW a works effort it seems like maybe this is the beginnings of going back towards more that kind of Team, which should be really good to see, Leclerc will be, you know, a great asset to them. Even though he's a, you know, a rookie, very talented driver, and high hopes that he's going to go all the way and be up near the front, fighting the likes of Verstappen and on in the future. So, exciting times for Sauber, I think.
1: They've definitely got, they've got some stability now. And after a few years of first it, staff weren't getting paid, then you obviously had that deal with them the team could have got sold then you had the Honda deal that fell apart and the relationship with Fro, which was pretty poor towards the end and before they kind of renegotiated the deal and got the the latest spec power unit so I think as Ben was saying the latest spec will make a massive difference I think even when they were running the old spec they still weren't getting the most out of uh, that engine um given the relationship with Ferrari. Uh, it improved
3: say, at the end, though, I think. The last few races, they've, people I mean, in the team were saying, oh, we, we they had more power, they had better cooling. I that's think. because
1: they decided that they were sticking with Ferrari. Exactly, and long yeah. and yeah. Ferrari deal, went, hey, so, yeah. you can have
3: this map now. <laughs> exactly.
1: Um, so I think that's important. And like you're saying, the stability, I think, will be important. I think that would just help them make them that early first step, which they have just been missing this year.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think, um, you know, the... the the power unit upgrade itself is gonna be worth six, five, six tenths. And that that could bring them at least you know, on certain weekends they were they were ahead of tour also, weren't they? It'll put them in the midfield, won't and it, properly, rather than yeah. trying to scrap to be in, and in the final. They've got you know, they've got good people there. You got Luca Fabato. you got um I think Eric Candelian is the aero man there. Uh Zanders back and um, and Fred Vazios is smart cookie. You know he gets he gets the idea of standard parts and buying things off the shelf. And let's be honest, that is what midfield teams should be doing. You know that's it's, that is exactly the foundations of Force India's success. Is go to Mercedes, buy all the bits that you can buy off the shelf, spend the money efficiently, and, and then you'll get success. And and frankly, that's. You know, if you're not a works team with with the budget of a works team, then you might as well do that. And yeah. that's, and I don't have a, you know, people often talk about the DNA of F1 and people, people, you know, say this and the other about customer cars and buying things off the shelf. Um, and I know Ed, you and Brickler hate this phrase, the DNA of F1, because you can have an argument any way, really, to justify it. Um
2: it all comes down to how evolution works and mutations and things. Yeah. It's just a bad metaphor. But, but you
0: know, buying things <laughs> off the shelf has been part of it. You know, people used to buy Absolutely. a DFE engine and a Lotus chassis or a Brabham chassis yeah. and run it for three and, or four years and have a team. <laughs> yeah, and and away they went. And so, yeah, I'm I'm, I'm interested to see how Sauber goes next year. And I, I mean, Leclerc is a top talent. He's a he's a proper proper talent. So, uh, and I'm really
3: pleased. He's a lovely kid as well. You know, it's really nice to see him get an opportunity yeah Ferrari have got high hopes for him haven't they I think the wide expectation is that if he has a very strong
2: 2018 as we expect he'll be in that Kimi Raikkonen Ferrari seat for the following year potentially. And, it'd be, and it'd be particularly good for him if Sauber can be a proper competitive midfield team because drivers who are kind of in marginal points cars can by making a very small difference make a very very big difference and that's always what you're you're looking for from those drivers and that's
3: partly what's scuppered Pascal Verline this year, isn't it? The Sauber not being competitive enough. I know he scored points on a couple of occasions, but he said many times, and Marcus Oakston said the same thing. It's been difficult to stand out when you're basically at the back of the grid, only fighting your teammate. If Leclerc, in a Sauber alpha, is able to fight properly in the midfield, he'll be able to show what he can do. And also, with the pressure of having that competition as well, Ferrari will be able to find out actually what he's really made of. So the um, in summary, the Sauber fan club with the president...
0: Ed Straw sitting here. It's growing. Going to expand next season. Yeah. I, I
2: might. You never know. I might renew my my membership. Um, is anybody excited about the Alfa Romeo side of things? Yes. It's only it's only a branding thing, but it's quite a cool brand to have. I agree. Yeah. yeah it's yeah. great.
3: Great to see the name back, isn't it? You
2: know? Yeah. Yeah. No. It's, it's a good
3: bit of fever attached to that. You know. Good. Good name. Good history. Um, it's a nice way of badging the Ferrari support. Yeah, it's going to be is going to be enhanced. You know, Salva going from year old Ferrari engines that you know what have we got in the back of the garage to give you to a proper partnership again. So are kind of on the Haas lines. You know, we don't know. It's exactly smart where marketing as well, isn't it? Exactly, it's really yeah. smart marketing because you're 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 hedging your brands, and I, you often,
0: or I've often wondered why the other groups didn't do it, whether it was the Renault Nissan Alliance or or Daimler. You know just brand them differently you yeah. know you you could have had a mclaren nissan and get bigger or, exposure on, had, you know exposure across different brands but you know maybe that's just a simplistic way of thinking about it well there's a
3: there's a school of thought espoused by christian horner that it's a prelude to ferrari pulling out of formula one and alpha will be the the way they continue but i don't know if if that is the long-term plan or not, Ferrari pulling out as a whole podcast on its own isn't. it? Love to
0: <laughs> trace, trace the history of how many times they've done <laughs> that.
2: The history of their pull-out threats. Well, it's almost. I mean, all- the
0: all-time greatest hit is building that Indy car, isn't it? That yep. is the all-time greatest hit
3: of threat and pull-out. Uh, yeah. Uh, so when, when when they build a Formula E car or a,
2: a wet car, then
3: we'll. Uh, We'll start taking the threats more seriously.
2: Yeah, we'll know they'll be serious. The only thing that's a bit of a shame about this is there was talk about it potentially being an all Ferrari junior driver lineup, and with due respect to Marcus Ericsson, it'd been quite nice to see that Antonio Giovinazzi. there. I don't think Giovinazzi's quite in the Leclerc bracket, but he's a very, very capable driver. And I think it's a little bit of a shame that the fact he had a couple of shunts early in the year, people have decided one well, Hungary as well. He had, he had the crash. People have just decided he's some crash-prone idiot, which he isn't. He's a He's a very serious driver, and while I sort of still feel he's destined to be driving for AF Corsa in, in the Ferrari GT lineup down the line, it would have been nice for him to have had a proper crack at, at Formula One as well.
3: Well yeah, he he was really impressive that weekend in Melbourne coming in for Verline and Verline decided he wasn't fit enough to do the race. He did F P three and Pushed Ericsson really hard in qualifying. He was really fast, really impressive, but just didn't really build on it. He had an opportunity at the next race, crashed. I think his shunts haven't held. shunts have have held him and back. Budapest and, as well. Yeah, in Budapest Haas. in the Hass, and you know you can't. You know they all the drivers say when they're doing FP ones that no, the rule is don't crash the car because you've got to give it back. You've got to do the serious work. Well, for he the was weekend, scruffy so.
0: in Abu Dhabi as well, wasn't he? In FP one, so yeah, I, 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 and I think. You know, Marcus obviously you've got the Swedish owners on side, so Yeah.
2: All right. Should we move on? Well the last topic is a is a driver who well for the, for most of this year anyway has been a little bit out of the way, Jensen Button. Jensen Button's doing super G T full season next year. Being in a Honda in Super G T isn't necessarily your first choice. So how, how do we think he'll get on there?
3: He'll have some fun, won't he? <laughs>
2: yeah, <laughs> I'm sure he that's enjoy what he's it.
3: doing it for, I think. They're great cars,
0: amazing circuits. You know, Japan's got an extraordinary number of Good race tracks, um, not Old just school. The little Mickey Mousey things. Yeah, proper circuits. Um, he loves it there. Uh, he's he's popular and he'll earn lots of money out of
3: it, no mm. doubt. So um, and rediscover why he, you know, fell in love with motor racing in the first place, which people need to do sometimes. After
0: well, he admitted he'd
2: and, sort of fallen a little bit out of love with it.
0: He didn't look like he wanted to be in Monaco, did he? Like he, you know, that whole weekend, it was it was as if it was a chore, really. Uh, that somebody's dragged him off his Californian holiday to come and do that race. He he really didn't look keyed up, keyed up or enthusiastic. It was very much uh, I'm here to do what do I
2: do and then I go.
3: Yeah, and it, you could see that building through 2016 as well. You know, he, he he had enough really.
2: It was already a season too far, really, wasn't it?
3: Yeah, he said, he said he said as much. I think didn't he in press conference in Japan when he visited the Grand Prix that he stayed too long. Um, although,
2: although he did do a very good job in his Monaco outing of parking a Sauber very neatly up against a barrier, he did. I was yeah. quite impressed by that. Well,
3: no,
0: frankly, he did a good job. Anyway, at all, yeah, absolutely. You we know. anyway, got into Q3, he was, didn't he? Yeah, he was quick, and he was, you know, okay. The shame, of the engine penalties and stuff, but he um, he, he did a good you job. Know, at right? the end of the day, he he's he's still a extremely talented and skilled racing driver, and that you know that that talent comes out. The motivation to do it all through the season is not there. But when he has to dig deep for that qualifying run,
3: he—I thought he was—he was, he was really good. I mean, that's the difference between Button and someone like Alonso, isn't it? Alonso still has the same fire as ever, still delivers 100% all the time, puts the effort in all areas to get the most out of himself. Jensen just didn't have that drive anymore. But as you say, he's still a quality driver. But he needed to re- rediscover the motivation, and this this way he gets to do something in a lower pressure environment. Do it on his terms for his own reasons. And he'll probably get more out of himself
2: as a result. Yeah, and obviously, it's difficult to go into a specialized environment like that, that championship and do well. But Hake won the title a couple of years ago. Having gone out there, we have seen European drivers be very successful in Super GT. I think it'll be a, a tough first season, shall we say? So I think anyone expecting him to go in, you know, drivers don't dominate Super GT anyway because of the way it's operated. But if, you know, if he if he gets a win in his first season, you'd say that's seriously impressive, especially in a, in a Honda. But, you know, if he spends a few years there, there's a, no reason why he can't be the Chenson uh, the Button of old. Well, I think that about covers the, the big news. We're all obviously waiting on what's going to happen from Williams. So remember to keep checking back to autosport.com for all the news on that. Autosport magazine out every Thursday, which, in fact, our season review issue will be uh, be coming out this week, this Thursday. So so look out for that. Thanks very much to Karine Chandock, Lawrence Beretto, and Ben Anderson for your, your time and insight. And thanks very much to you, the listener, for joining us. We'll be back soon with another Autosport podcast.